Hello and welcome to another episode of ITC Entertain the World, the podcast. And as always, I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Al Smudge and Rodney Marshall. I'll just say hello to those. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Evening, Jazz. Yeah, hi, Jazz. All good. Thank you. Today, we're talking about a series called The Sentimental Agent, a series that's a spin-off of Man of the World. We covered that in a previous podcast, that series. Sentimental Agent stars Carlos Thompson as... Now, this is an interesting bit because in Man of the World, he was known as Carlos Borella. But in this series, he's Carlos Varela. Difference between a B and a V. Anyway, they've got his name sorted out, I suppose, now. It ran for 13 episodes. It was made primarily at Shepperton Studios with a little bit of location work here and there. I think it's one of those ITC series that's probably forgotten about. I'd never seen an episode of it until it was made available on DVD. I quite enjoyed it the first time I watched it, but it's very peculiar because towards the end, our leading man disappears completely. And there's a bit of irony there because the reason he was in the Man of the World episode called The Sentimental Agent is because that's a holiday episode for the star of that show, Craig Stevens, and they needed someone to sort of carry that episode. So he did that. And then he gets his own series and then he goes off <laughs> towards the end and he disappears. And we get a, a replacement, an actor called John Turner, who plays the character Bill Randall. He's joined in this by Burke Quirk, who plays the character Chin, who like is, 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 I suppose, faithful manservant. And Clements Bettany, who plays his secretary, Miss Susie Carter. It's a show that I think has probably been forgotten about, hence why we're going to talk about it. As I said on the previous pod, I'm a big fan of Man of the World, and certainly one of the better Man of the World episodes, I think, is The Sentimental Agent. And watching that episode with hindsight, Carlos is such a fantastic character. He's got such charm and style. He's got a bit of the sort of Roger Moore, Simon Templar about him that I can understand why it led to a series coming off it. I mean, I guess we should point out that he wasn't on holiday for those episodes he missed. He was clearly very ill because he ended up in a convalescent home, didn't he, back home in Switzerland. It's an interesting series because between Carlos in Man of the World and Carlos in the Sentimental Asian, there is a slight key change because in the Man of the World episode, it is more in line with the routine ITC action adventure type of series. We've got the sort of semi-spy elements in that episode where he's storing microfilm and he hides it in his cigarette holder and that. But when we shift across to the sentimental agent, there's much more of emphasis on comedy drama. A lot of the crew behind it have got huge comedy experience. When we were talking before the recording, Jazz, I think you say sort of like action adventure light, which it is, but it doesn't make it any the worse for it. Carlos doesn't really get involved with, say, the usual fisticuffs that Simon Templar or John Drake would have got involved with. There are a couple of fight sequences in this series, but generally there's kind of none of that. It's more to do with, I think, the delivery of his lines. We should say that Carlos runs this import-export business, as he did in the Man of the World episode called Mercury International, and hence how that espionage piece came into that Man of the World episode. He kind of uses his wits more than anything in this. The dialogue for him is very, very good. And he clearly gets that across in a very charming way. He's brilliant. And I think that's probably makes up for the fact that there aren't fisticuffs and there aren't sort of guns and girls kidnapped at ransom and all this sort of thing. Although there are, we'll come on to some of those bits in, in episodes, but it, it's not a typical ITC action adventure series at all. The very nature of his job, he is a salesman. And so he's got to be able to persuade people. And I think that's a sort of running light motif, isn't it? We often see him persuading people, you know, buy this coffee and you'll never have uh, any sort of marital problems ever again. He can sell anything to anyone. So he doesn't need to use violence. The series depends upon that central character's charm 
and persuasiveness to their atmospheres, I think, of ITC action adventure in there. But it, it does very much rely on the charm of Carlos and the triangle of the working relationships with Chin and his secretary, Susie. It's a sort of on the road to ITC action adventure. It's a pleasant cul-de-sac. We've read about it being dismissed as that series with the bloke who can't speak English. And I think he does a wonderful job when you consider English isn't his first language. It's absolutely perfect. I don't see why people say that sort of thing. Oh, but it's not even his second language, is it? Even the villains are light. I mean, I'm thinking if you compare Peter Arm in Colony 3, where he's literally dripping evil, and you compare him to here, where actually there's almost a sort of a mutual distrust, but also respect between him and Carlos's character. So it, it, it's a very, very different show. But as you say, I, I think that makes it sort of a welcome change. You know, I wasn't being critical when I was calling it action-adventure light. There's definitely more comedy in it, but I don't think it's comical, if you know what I mean. It's kind of the interplay, the comedy, I think, between the three characters, as you were just mentioning there, Smudge. When you see on screen Chin and Carlos, that's almost like a double act, and there's a lot of give and take in that, points where Chin will take the mickey out of Carlos and Carlos will take the mickey back. And stuck in the middle is like this rock uh, who runs the office is his secretary, Susie. So, and occasionally she has a few lines that are, are comical to both of them. So I think that's where the comedy lies. And because there's not much comedy in other parts of the show. There's a lightness to it. The whole thing bubbles along. You get your, your bits of adventure, you get your stories, your plots, but it's not stayed really it does bubble along on those relationships and it really is different and it really is to me it really is a nice touch there is a wonderful interview with Bert Quigg which is on the network dvd on that he describes his character as a stereotypical chinese servant but actually i think sentimental engine plays with those stereotypes and it often actually satirizes other people's sort of racism so there's a character in the Diana Rigg episode who assumes that Chin is dealing in laundry because he's Chinese. And, <laughs> yeah. And we also get the fact that Chin actually is sort of quite racist about other cultures. He says he can't stand Arabic food and things like this. So I think they're quite playful with it. We find out that Chin actually can speak English perfectly well. He chooses to be inscrutable to annoy people. The thing is, it's not the stereotypical manservant. There are elements, as he was described in the press book as the Limehouse Jeeves, there is such a strong element of Jeeves to Chin. But it's not the stereotypical manservant relationship. Look at how many times he either drives the plot or he's there as the backup to make sure the plot works and to make sure the hero is kept safe. There are some brilliant bits of scene stealing by Bert as Chin. And he is vital to so many of the stories. You miss him when he's not there on the missions. Would it be fair to say once again, we have the female of the trio who is a little bit marginalised. I mean, she does go on one mission to the Greek island, but so far as I'm aware, as soon as they get there, she sort of disappears. I think she goes on another one as well, because she goes on one with John Turner, but I do know what you mean. But when I was looking at this again, I was kind of thinking about her character and I think she's kind of, and I'm going to compare her to Tracy Reed's character in Man of the World, whereas Tracy Reed was very mod and with it and very 60s and swinging. I think Susie, the character, is stiff and late 50s and a bit proper. And I'm not sure that that really gives her much of a chance to really get involved more than the usual sort of secretarial or business fixing that she does for Carlos. And do you think they were aware of that? I wondered whether her sort of romantic involvement with Bill, the Carlos substitute, is almost to make up for the fact that they thought, well, she hasn't had a huge amount to do. I'm going to defend Clemens Bethany and Susie Carter here. The reality of it is Mercury International is the perfect name for Carlos's company because he is mercurial. He's here, there and everywhere. And essentially, 
Chin and Susie hold the day-to-day -day working of the company together. If Susie wasn't that efficient, Carlos is sometimes so hopeless or sometimes so elsewhere, the business would probably fall flat on its face. And she's clearly brighter than Bill in <laughs> the later four episodes. You can see that where Bill's being taken in, she can see it coming a mile off. Yeah, she's, she's not dramatically involved in many stories, but I think she's got a, a decent crack of the whip in terms of female characterization at the time. I see what you mean about holding it all together, and I get that. I just think that she's... Um, dull. Yeah, yeah. I think, to be fair, dull is a good word. Nothing against the actress, because, you know, she can only sort of kind of play it how it is. What about Carlos's character? Because he is a little bit morally grey. I mean, he's quite happy to sell arms. In fact, on one mission, they're getting shot at and he reckons he probably sold the weapons that are being used. <laughs> yeah. He's quite happy to be part of a protection racket on a Greek island. I wouldn't make a big deal of it because normally he will get involved because he's aware that his perhaps integrity has been compromised and he needs to do something to sort it out. But at the same time, there is a slightly shady side to him. Yeah, I think the sort of benchmark for Carlos is really do as you would be done to. We see him happily prepared to cheat at cards, but then he, he knows that these guys have been ripping off other people by cheating. He is slightly morally dubious. You get little hints and tips about it throughout the series. He's not dissimilar to Simon Templer before him. You can easily accept this character work in light and darkness. In the first episode, the Man of the World episode, he says, half-jokingly, he's only in it for the money. And that, that is a primary driver for this guy. He's always wheeling and dealing. He never stops any slight advantage, even if he goes to sort of like a cheap East European hotel and the whiskey or the bourbon or whatever it is is rubbish. He'll say, oh, I can get you a concession on such and such. He's an incorrigible flirt, sometimes to the point of what would be called out in the modern era. Sometimes he's just sitting talking with a lady and he can't help leaning forward, leaning forward, leaning into her, you know, all the time. I think in terms of that physicality with women, you're perhaps putting British values on it. I mean, he's a Latin lover, isn't he? As I know from having lived in France, a lot of nations are far more physical. We tend to be quite standoffish. I'm obviously making dangerous generalisations here. Of course, Carlos Thompson had made his reputation in Hollywood, hadn't he, as a sort of Latin lover. Mm -hmm. So in a way, is he not here playing a sort of TV role, which he probably had done in the movies? And we have to remember this is 1963, so attitudes in Britain, if, if you think we're standoffish now, if you go back <laughs> to then, blimey, we were stand 20 feet away from them sort of thing so well it's great casting isn't it because carlos is carlos quite literally but um there must be elements of the actor in there and this is almost the end of his acting career isn't it i think by 1967 he's completely turned his back on tv films and is writing did some producing it seems a shame because he is the biggest plus of this series for me. We do get to see how integral that role is when, unfortunately, he disappears due to his illness. And we have that sea change at Mercury International with the introduction of Bill Randall. And it is a very, very different dynamic. I think that's probably why they signed him up. Once they'd done the Man of the World episode and that had been seen to be, you know, a success... And there is this thing where people say, was it written deliberately to be a pilot? Well, in the ITC series guide, the original press book, it says it wasn't. It says that it became the pilot in effect after the success of that episode. And clearly when Man, Man of the World was having all those problems and coming to an end and Craig Stevens was probably thinking, I'm going to go back to America. The producer, Harry Fine, was probably looking for his next project. He probably thought what worked Oh, I know that one we did with Carlos Thompson in where, you know, he sort of carried the episode, which he did. He could probably carry a series. So that's kind of, I think, where um, it all sort of starts going. And, and like he does carry the series. And once he's not there, like you said, with his illness, it's suddenly a very different beast and one that's not particularly great, if we're honest. 
with the Man in the World series being the sort of start for this series, I mean, we should point out, I think we have already, that it wasn't a deliberate spin-off when it first came around. It was an episode that was popular and ended up becoming a series. The producer there was Harry Fine, and he became the producer on Sentimental Agent. And a lot of the crew came along with him. It was a bit of a sort of seamless carry-on, really. And I can see why some people might think, oh, that was an episode that was planned to be made into a series. But clearly it wasn't. But I do like this in the way that I've got some nice opening credits on this series where we see Carlos driving a very nice Aston Martin across Tower Bridge and into the dockside in London where his company's based, Mercury International. And then, you know, he gets out of his car and he gives a girl a, one of his flirtatious looks and we move on and get into the, the episodes themselves. Now, some of these episodes have teasers, some don't. It doesn't seem to be a set format there. Same with Man of the World. It's a bit freeform, isn't it? What I do like about the credits is, as, as you've sort of said there, it really succinctly epitomises the character in that minute, minute and a half, whatever it is. He's driving a really nice car, that gorgeous Aston Martin, which is still on the road, apparently. He gets out, he's in this immaculate white suit and white fedora. And, and as he gets out, he gives the girl that little, as you say, flirtatious look. And, and that's him in a nutshell. We've, we've got Carlos set up really economically. And of course, we've got clips from Men of the World in those titles. When they focus in on him, that's directly taken from the Sentimental Agent episode, isn't it? Yes, it is. Mercury International there, you were saying about his white suit. I hadn't thought really like about him getting that dirty because in his office, it goes into the warehouse, but then from direct from the warehouse, you go into this plush, really swish and modern office that he has. And of course, he sleeps there. He's got his bedroom to the side. And that's quite an impressive little set, actually, because on a number of episodes, you see the camera comes through as if something's being unloaded and then it goes through the... But there's a bit of a warehouse and then it goes in and you sort of see a secretary open a door and take something and then the camera will go in and you can see the expanse of the office. So they clearly thought all of that out really well. But I think a lot of that was probably because of the budget restrictions on this we have uh, got the figure of £22,500 for an episode, which was about 4000 less than Man of the World. It is cheap in places, but where they have spent that money on the set, there's obviously they've like, we've got to use this as much as we can. That's the sort of contradiction here. You've got this urbane Man of the World, arguably more, more a Man of the World than Michael Strait ever was, and yet he's sleeping in a flat in the Docklands. And back then, Docklands was Docklands. It wasn't Docklands mm -hmm. like it is now. Well, I take it that he's hardly ever there. And that's mm -hmm. why he lives sort of on site that he, because he is a man of the world and he's always traveling, he's more likely to be in a hotel in Havana or Caracas than he is in Limehouse. I don't know. But he's definitely more of a man of the world as well than Craig Stevens actually kind of was. He does seem to be more well-traveled, probably more worldly in his knowledge. He's a much more rounded character in that respect. He's got all that art history that we see demonstrated in the scroll of Islam. There's obviously no language barrier to him. And as Rodney says, he's probably not there most of the time anyway. We can read Chinese, we find out in the first mm. episode. So he's doing pretty well, isn't he? <laughs> One of the fabulous things about this series is the music. And we're so lucky because the music survives and it's available as a soundtrack CD that Network have released. Now, the music in this is really, really great. A lot of it is based around a sort of sleazy jazz style and theme, which comes into the very first episode a lot called All That Jazz. The soundtrack is really great and the music is wonderful. The main theme actually was written by Ivor Slaney. And I think it won an Ivor Novello Award, didn't it, Rodney, you were saying? Yeah, no, it did. A lot of it is quite light as well. It's kind of joyful in a way, as well as in some places being a bit dark. I think international as well, but I think it's an accordion, isn't it, right at the end? What is amazing about the soundtrack is how they arrange it. They arrange it for so many different themes, i.e. you can have so many different moods, but always using Carlos's theme. 
there's not much location filming in this series. There's a little bit here and there where Carlos is driving his car through London, but it's kind of mostly studio bound. But I think it's quite well done because although it is in the confines of the grounds, they've made the grounds into like a jazz festival on one of the episodes. There's lots of bits where like the outside gazebo, stone gazebo is used and things like that. So it's clearly been well thought out that bit, I think. I don't really think the lack of locations lets the series down. And in fact, in terms of the stock as well, the stock is pretty good in this. I mean, it helps it's black and white. There, is, there are certain bits of the stock, like the one on the cruise ship where you've got the cruise ship party there. That stock looks very, very old. But for the most part, as you say, the stock works pretty well. And what is curious is the use of physical wipes for scene transitions. Sometimes that works fine. Other times it makes it feel a bit sort of previous decade to me. Yes, I mean, obviously what we do miss out on is, you know, this is a series which has sort of come out of Man in the World. And Man in the World, there's a huge amount of location, not just in the pilot, which was filmed in Spain, but even in the one set in England, they often go out to Thames side and things like that. We don't get much of that here. The other physical difference between this and Man of the World is the, the budget restraint does show in terms of scale of the sets. If you remember in Man of the World, we had some beautifully expansive sets. You did get that feeling of space, whereas here they've got good set design and they've got good set dressing, but you can almost perceive through the screen how much smaller in square feet those sets are. Well, it's almost gone back to the Danger Men half hour where I remember saying on the podcast, quite often there's sort of a hint of a set. I think you're right. Yeah, there is a sort of Danger Man feel, particularly to the first three episodes, not just in terms of the set dressing, there's a feel of Danger Man half hour. For example, the beneficiary, where the guy is assassinated right at the start of the episode, that is really sort of Danger Man. I see what you mean. I think those first three episodes, there's a lot more to them in terms of the scripting, in terms of the sets, the whole sort of feel of it is starting really well. And I think that one of the things with this series, as it goes on, it begins to sort of tail back, even with some of the Carlos episodes, but especially when you get to John Turner, Turner. there is a brief peak again with the episode Meet My Son Henry. They do a little bit of location and, and just the story itself is great. But there's a sort of a lull, I think, in the middle with the Carlos ones. And then there's a definite lull at the end. Uh, it's a shame, really, because the ones that are really good are actually really great fun and really good to watch. So I think in terms of a series, it's very inconsistent. Yeah, what we were saying before we came on to the broadcast, we were talking about the length of the series as a 13 episode thing. I mean, essentially to me, that would be something ITC would just bundle up and flog to the networks in America. Uh, 13 episodes indicates summer filler. But you said, Jazz, about the sustainability beyond 13, that we struggled mm. to get to 13. And I think you've got a good point there, because whilst it's an interesting concept, it's a very limiting concept. The fundamental principle here is it's not action adventure per se. It's not spy stories. The driver for Carlos is... He can only react to something that's affecting the reputation of Mercury International or affecting his own reputation, which I don't think he really gives a damn about anyway, to be perfectly honest, or he acts out of friendship. This is probably what causes the peaks and troughs. There's, there's a bit of limitation there. It inevitably means in the end that the plots repeat themselves because, yeah. you know, he heads out to the Bahamas because his company's reputation is at stake. He heads out to a cruise ship for the same reason a Greek island for the same reason. And there's only a certain number of times I think you can do that. If Zoo Gang is six episodes miniseries, this 13, in a way, feels more like an extended miniseries. And especially if you take out the John Turner ones, there's, what, eight, I think, that uh, Carlos is properly in, and I'm not talking reused footage or anything like that. I'm amazed that they carried on making them without Carlos. I'm absolutely staggered because you can't imagine them making a Danger Man episode without Patrick McGowan, or certainly not more than one. I know someone's going to go, oh, they managed a prisoner one, them. but they couldn't have done that over an extended period of time. You can't imagine a saint without Roger Moore. 
And Carlos is just as integral to this series, I would argue, as McGowan, Moore, Bradford, any of those guys. This would be a purely financial consideration because producers per se didn't get involved in the nitty gritty of these things. Mm. The whole thing of booking studio space and time would have been block booked out by the ATV or ITC organisational so that there would be a commitment there and no doubt Harry Fine would be pressured by Leslie Harris because Leslie Harris is the executive producer. He was at the time the head of ITC production apparently. So the sort of pressure would come direct really. We've got this block of studio time booked. We're wasting thousands of pounds to do something. Let's face it, if we watch the episodes up to the point where he's ill, John Turner is the only viable option who's been in the series before who can come in to be a replacement. He's the only employee that's been used as part of an episode, not just one that comes in, oh yeah, this is my man in Havana kind of thing, or you know, my man in the Greek islands. He's actually part of that plot. So he's the kind of obvious choice to come in and fill that gap that's been left he was all right in the episode Meet My Son Henry because he's a bit part player, but there's no way that he has the acting ability or skills or charm or whatever to carry the whole series, carry a whole episode of a series, let alone the three or four that he does. He has zero sex appeal. You can't imagine him persuading some lady to hand his passport back. I mean, we see him go off and try and sell things in a few of the episodes, and he's a terrible. He relies on all the ladies to be persuasive. So we've gone from a guy who could literally sell. I can't remember what expression you used earlier, Jazz. What did you say about Oh, Bill oh yeah. I, I said, well, Carlos is a man that could sell ice to Eskimos, but John Turner is a man who would fail in, in selling a glass of water to a man who's dying of thirst. The sentimental agent, as we said at the very beginning, it's all about persuasive powers. And Bill, stroke John, doesn't have any. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing because prior to this, John the actor, John Turner, had carried 37 episodes as the lead in Night Errant 59. So he, he was more than used to having the pressure of holding a series together, but this is probably very different and difficult circumstances. He's come in as a last-ditch replacement. You're into the last recording block of four. You're thrown three or four scripts, but as Rodney has observed, his wonderful nickname, Timber Turner, that he does come over as incredibly <laughs> staid and wooden. <laughs> oh that's brilliant <laughs> sorry um <laughs> rodney wins yeah rodney you win you, really... you win hands down for that <laughs> but the thing is the thing is with john turner timber turner as he's going to be known from now on the lines that were written obviously for carlos because obviously carlos went off ill but the the scripts would have been in preparation and ready to go. He just can't deliver them in the same way. And that's his big problem, I think. And also physically, you know, Carlos is his big presence. You put him in the screen and he kind of feels it. And, and, mm. and not only just feels it with his physical shape, but he feels it with his what's coming out of him, you know, his charm and the way he moves and everything. Whereas John Turner, like you say, it literally stands there like a, a slab of, well, a slab of timber. <laughs> They do. In one of the episodes, they dress him in a Carlos white suit, don't they? You know, I've got distinct views on the last four episodes, the Bill Turner episodes. Two of them, I can't abide. They are so weak plot wise. But the other two have got reasonable plots. And the last one, the Ian Stewart Black written episode, has got a plot that is worthy of Carlos. But Turner, as Bill, just doesn't have the charm to carry it off in that Carlos Thompson fashion. They're hoisted by their own petard because they've hired Carlos because Carlos is like Carlos. And that also means he's unique. And so you can't find another one. I mean, let's say the Baron. If the same thing had happened in the Baron, you could find someone to play the lead role because he's not a big personality, the actor. This guy is all personality and presence. To be yes. fair to John Turner... You're asking him, as I say, to replace someone who's unique, so it can't be done. 
you couldn't have found a replacement for Richard Bradford, as I said, Patrick McGowan, Roger Moore. Mm. These guys are unique, and that's what gives them that charm. And you can't give an actor screen presence. They've either got it or they haven't. Which tells you exactly how desperate Harry Fine must have been. There would have had to have been a bit of rewriting as well, wouldn't there? Because you start to get this rapport or relationship between him and Miss Carter, whereas there'd been no hint of romance between Carlos and Miss Carter. I imagine the scenarios and the scripts would have been pretty well written, just changes to the dialogue, which the script editor, uh, yeah, the script editor would have got the instruction, make these lines more romantic to make this plot work. I mean, what struck me re-watching this series is not only were all three leads in Man of the World episodes, but almost all the guest characters as well. I almost feel that these are integral to each other or they're connected so closely, aren't they, these two well, shows? There's a particular continuity. I mean, when you start looking at terms of the writers, a lot of the writers have previously worked on Ghost Squad. So that seems to be the linking factor because I was looking to see what involvement Harry Fine had in Ghost Squad. I couldn't sort of find anything off the cuff. There's a lot of continuity and it is obviously the ITC rep company again. It's an, it's an odd series because you can see when you look at the production staff rota, you've got Brendan Stafford doing the photography. On the other hand, the direction is pretty flat. There's not a lot that jumps out at you in the visual work. I was going to say, at times, they could almost be radio plays. They're sort of witty dialogue driven rather than what we're seeing. Yeah, a lot of it is sort of just point and shoot, isn't it? There's not much fluidity to the camera work. I mean, there is all that jazz where the interflora guy comes in on his bike and you get that sort of movement with the camera that it goes through the warehouse and it comes to that door and the door opens and there's Quite Susie, nice. the secretary. So you do get a few little bits, but they're few and far between. It's very much, here's a character and he's saying it. So we're like head and shoulder shot, cut to the next bit. There's not much of that camera movement. There's a little bit in the end of Meet My Son Henry where they do a couple of overhead shots in the cafe. There's some cutting, as Rodney has said previously, in... Never play cards with strangers. That's the one. For, for the most part, it is, as you say, Rodney dialogue and character driven. Which in some ways isn't a bad thing, but when you're used to it, comparing it to, say, The Saint and Danger Man, which contemporary, there's so much of that going on in those shows that you kind of come to this and you're suddenly like, oh, this is a bit flat. I think we should probably talk about some of the episodes. The obvious place to start is All That Jazz, which is the first episode. And it's got an interesting sort of Cold War espionage type plot. Secret ciphers are being coded into music, which is being played individually that night. And I think that idea was reused in a Thunderbirds episode, the Cham Cham. So that's kind of where we get our first touch of espionage in this series. And I like the use of the grounds, like I was saying, where they set up the jazz festival and the music's great. Annika Wills is great in it. And they go to Heathrow Airport and you see the wonderful Aston Martin and Peter Rahn's great in it, as always. You've got Anthony Bushel in it. He's quite fun, really, because he's always taking his snuff. Brilliant, actually, dialogue in this. Really witty. Lots of setups for what's going to hopefully go on for further episodes. I just thought it was a really nice starting point. It's a very witty script as well. I think this is where you can see, Jazz was talking earlier about the sort of Danger Man qualities, but you can also see where it's so different from Danger Man because you've got the characters in here who you just wouldn't find in a Danger Man episode. So you've got this sort of piano tuner who's appalled that he's been asked to mutilate, I think was the word he uses, this sort of instrument. He refuses to even take his tip because he's appalled by it. And the Anthony Bushel character, although he comes up with this, I'm only interested in security, not sentiments, which is a very danger man type sort of attitude. He's also rather fun and he's busy sort of sniffing his snuff and everything else. So it takes danger man ideas and it makes them rather sort of souffle-ish, doesn't it, in a nice way. Yeah, it does. I mean, you've got Anthony Bushel, he's stereotypically cast as BMI 5 man. You've got that little tagline bit of humour with him at the end of the episode. 
and then you've got the Peter Arn character, who's yet another Eastern Bloc attaché, but it's all played fairly light. You've got the thing when he buys the clavichordal, and he says it's nice to do business in a, an atmosphere of complete mutual distrust. It takes the Danger Man spy thing, and it riffs on it. It brightens it up with a little bit of light comedy, not over the top. I mean, that lovely bit where he goes to the cocktail party, very spy stuff. Goes to the cocktail party to make a contact, does a dramatic entrance with his cloak, and then virtually everybody and his dog has got the other half of his code phrase. <laughs> it is playing with that genre in a joyful way. It has got the Danger Man thing where they go into the room and there's like microphones that are bugging in the chandelier that he sort of takes out and all of that. He actually is involved in a bit of fisticuffs at the end, which is one of the few times that Carlos actually gets into a fight. It's kind of Danger Man and playing with it, like you say. I think you can see that episode is halfway between Sentimental Agent, the Man of the World episode, and Sentimental Agent, the series. Because yeah. he's still showing sort of espionage skills like finding bugs. Now that will sort of disappear and he'll just be an importer exporter using his charm. Here he's still got a few of the sort of the agent qualities, isn't he? Yeah, it's the only time I think he does do a job for, let's say, MI5 or whatever, you know, inverted commas they are. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't really do anything else like that. So, I mean, as a standalone, I think that's probably why it stands up. It feels a little bit swinging, doesn't it? The driver of it, though, isn't the MI5 thing, is it? It's because they're passing aspersions on him because he's booked all the gigs where all these codes have mm. been broken. Mention of Honor has to go to Annika Wills, who does a really nice job on the miming. And, and that's where there is some decent cutting where you see the actual vibraphone player playing and then mm. cut back to Annika. But she really looks convincing. Allegedly, she got five lessons through Tubby Hayes and the point of contact was Humphrey Littleton. Another great thing about this episode is the sort of beatnik bands. You know, they are very young and sort of happening young 60s kids. Well, they're using modern lingo, aren't they? And you've got that lovely contrast between this rather stuffy formal embassy gig and then their sort of groovy informal hippie festival later. And uh, I love that. And there's also that low-level frisson between Annika and Carlos. She really digs him, as they say in the vernacular. <laughs> Another episode I like is The Beneficiary, which for me actually feels a bit like an early go at A Man in a Suitcase, two-parter, variation on a million bucks. It ends up being in Lisbon and it's all about going into a bank vault and getting the stuff from the bank vault itself. But it's so much better because it hasn't got any ITC on a boat in it. And it has got a lovely little bit at the start where at the Mercury International offices, you see the Mona Lisa. He sort of jokes with them and say, haven't we sent that back yet? There's lots of lovely little bits in this. I think it's quite good because it keeps you guessing all the time who is the murderer, who has shot this friend of his in the back. Aubrey Morris is in both, isn't he? As Aubrey always does, playing the sort of morally dubious, rather shifty character. I think when Aubrey first comes in, I compared him to his character in the Danger Man episode, The Affair at Castellavara. But yeah, it is sort of like a proto run for the Man in a Suitcase episode, and it does benefit from being that bit shorter. There's a very much a Danger Man feel to the start, to the cold execution. We've got Derek Francis and Aubrey Morris doing the Sydney Green Street and Peter Laureate. It's a sort of Maltese Falcon vibe in the end. It strikes me a lot with these episodes that they tend to, plot-wise, they seem to sort of split into two. And you've got one half of the show, and then, like in this one, the second half of the programme settles in on the bank vault. That seems to happen a lot, and it does sort of show the budgetary constraints. They make as much use of single sets as they can. Let's be fair. It's a decent set, but yeah, you're right. Well, this is the one episode that offers us some backstory, doesn't it? Mm. Because we find out he was a bomber in Korea Mm -hmm. and he's actually identified as being Argentinian and he's sort of paying back a moral debt. And unlike McGill, who, of course, in that two-parter is there only for the money, he actually, Carlos, puts money to one side and put, as I say, moral debts first. It's one of the friendship-derived plots. It's yet another plot that shows Carlos's ingenuity because it's very much Maltese Falcon meets Merchant of Venice because he swaps around the containers, doesn't he? And they get what they ask for at a price. So there's Carlos working for money again. What you actually get is not necessarily what you want. It's Carlos being clever, clever. 
I do like there's a very early, it's only a few seconds, where he goes up and checks lipstick on his cheek in the car wing mirror. And then I think he talks about having had a delightfully rough evening. And I thought <laughs> that was quite fun. We get a lot of those little sort of roguish touches, like in the jazz episode where he deliberately parks in the no parking zone. The viewer is supposed to see Carlos as the likeable rogue. The one you mentioned earlier about being set on a cruise ship, never play cards with strangers, is another one that I really like. And I think that one's got some lovely bits to it. I mean, the, the older couple who are the card sharks who are going on cruises and conning people out of money by cheating at cards and the bursar or whatever he is in on it and getting his 10%. But Susanna Lee's in it and she's lovely and great. And Chin comes into his own, I think, in this one where he comes on the mission and there's... You know, he's more of a card shark than the people who are card sharks themselves. That's a nice little touch. He's worked out how they, they're cheating at cards by use of vanity mirror and his smoking pipe that's got a mirror in the bottom and things like that. And he's worked it all out because he's stolen the bits and looked at them and shown them to Carlos. In terms of the sets there, there's not much. There's obviously his cabin and the main bit where the card sharking goes on. The, I liked that story. I, I thought there was a lot of nice double act bits going on with Chin and Carlos. There's a yeah. wonderful bookshop scene before he <laughs> even gets on the boat. And he's mm. gone in to buy this sort of card sheeting book. And the bookshop owner is disgusted. But we find out this book's even outsold Lolita. And he sells it to him in a sort of plain paper bag as if the guy's buying pornography. That was a lovely fun scene. This one is brilliant. I love this one. It, it's a Carlos adventure, but it really is Chin's story. I mean, when Carlos is seasick at the start of the voyage, Chin, he's snuck on board because one of his cousins works for the liner or something. This is the brilliant thing about Chin. He's got so many family connections. He's got a bigger family than Charlie Chan. And Chin just drives this episode. His cousin bought a different book, a better book on cheating and what have you. And like you say, Jazz, there's so much wonderful interplay between Carlos and Chin. He does steal it, I think. I rather like the fact that Carlos is seasick because you've got characters like John Drake who at times are almost too perfect. And here we see that actually he's got his weaknesses. He's not an action hero. His weaknesses are usually of the female variety though, aren't they? Yes. It's a lovely constructed plot because just when you think you've run out of thought three quarters of the way through the episode, they bring in the desperation of the card shops and they come to steal the money and then the way Chin resolves that one is really, really fun. You know, this does open a certain possible argument. Why didn't they just let Chin take over when Carlos went? Because he proves not? in so many of these episodes that he really can carry a scene and he's got charm and a sense of humour. Maybe that would have been a bit too alternative. Perhaps they hadn't realised he was actually from Warrington. Another one I think is great as well is Meet My Son Henry, which is a bit of a holiday episode, I suppose, for Carlos. And it's the one where John Turner is introduced and he's accompanying Susie overseas. There, that relationship works. But the young man who plays Henry in this is sublime and absolutely steals it. But also we've got some great guest villains in there as well as Darren Nesbitt and Glyn Edwards. Um, Vladek Shabol, who is always a favourite of mine. We've got the lovely bit where they go overseas using the airplane ferry. We've got a little bit of location work, like I said, where they go down to the Dorchester Hotel and they go to Cecil Court sort of area of London. And we've also got Chin's Judo on Carlos, which he's then teaching to Henry that Henry picks up and is a really quick learner and he comes and uses it at the end. That's sort of, again, a bit of a standout episode. I mean, Henry Peabody, Stephen Logering, is just phenomenal. It's not a good performance. This is up there with one of the best child performances I've seen. We don't tend to get children in ITC action adventures. This guy, for me, he's the glue in the episode. And I, it's just a complete mystery to me how he never, ever acted again. It all hangs on that one line of Bill's. There's a visual touch to this one because Henry goes off to play the fruit machine. Susie and Bill are talking at the bar and there's a lovely framing shot with those two left and right to frame. And in the centre, in the background is Henry. 
Bill just delivers the pivotal lines to the story where he says, you think you're taking care of Henry. Henry is taking care of you. And that is spot on because that boy is so good and that character is so well written. It's surprising that he never went on and did any other acting because when you look at it, you know, he's a natural, isn't he? And he's got comic timing. And that's something yeah. really hard to get in a child actor. I'll tell you what we don't get, which is a great thing, which is something we often mention in podcasts. I'm not aware of any doubles. When you see, say, the Aston Martin turn up at Mercury International, it definitely is Carlos driving it and Carlos getting out. And there's a few episodes where they do that. And you're right, I couldn't spot a double anywhere. The logic of that is because they were so limited in location work anyway. Because they're not going out and about, there's no real need for second unit or doubles. It's less based around the premise of, here's a problem, I've got to solve it, I've got to have a fight, and that, which I might have to have another fight, and then I might have to have another fight, which is sort of typical, say, of Randall or Danger Man or something like that. There's so little sort of fisticuffs in this yeah. that they don't really need a double for him because he's not really getting involved in any running fights or anything. like. It's not a fight every week like there was in, say, Randall. I've been driving this and choosing episodes. What about ones for you? Come on, let's hear some of your ones that you want to talk about. I like The Scroll of Islam. It reminded me a little bit of the Man of the World episode with the archaeologist going out into the desert, etc. I thought, again, it was quite a nicely scripted episode. Carlos has got fantastic knowledge of ancient history. He's got respect for other cultures. To me, the only weakness was, as soon as I see Alan Gifford, I think dodgy villain. And Carlos doesn't pick up on that. But I love the scorpion detail. I thought that was a great little bit. Well, there's clearly a change in the dynamic because Carlos thinks he's doing whatever he's doing. And unfortunately, this is where he's sort of judgment lapses. He only checks up on these guys in who's who. He doesn't do anything else. And he ends up inadvertently helping them steal things. The dynamic just does change. And and the, the scene after... Carlos is aware of what's happened when he goes back to see William Sylvester in the apartment. There's a real dynamism to Carlos there. There's a good tension there in that dialogue. You can really see that underneath it all, there is a certain steel. There's a bit of menace about him there, isn't there? There is. Trouble is Alan Gifford. He always plays Alan Gifford, I think. Patrick Troughton was the shake. There's an early appearance for Frank Thornton. If you know, are you being served? This is one of the ones that really does highlight Carlos's ability to sell, though, doesn't it? Because he's end up selling the doorbells to the Arab sheikh and they all live in tents. That's a bit of a cringe point for me. I think that even then, I think that would have been a bit of a patronising gag. It's funny, but it's a bit demeaning, I suppose. very desirable plot. I think that's a really good episode because it's showcasing Carlos's ingenuity once again. It also showcases his failings because he's gone into business with this guy, Lamont, in the Bahamas, virtually sight unseen. So he gets wrapped up in guilt by association and he gets all this trouble. I love the little opener with the fake palm tree, which shows that Elstree isn't the only studio that's got a supply of them. Little nice little touch with the sinking shovel as the worker puts them down, turns around, and they've suddenly disappeared. I think they revamped the hotel set from the Henry story. You've got a lovely role for Diana Rigg. She's really good as the suspicious daughter of William Mervyn. Carlos lets the plot build by terms of Chinese whispers. Mm. He just puts the insinuation in, and Lamont is finally hoist on his own petard. It's a double win for Carlos because not only does he get to help out the people who he thinks has been wronged, he gets the wedge of money from Lamont as well. So not not only is he drawing him in, he literally makes him pay for it. There's a lovely little line when he's first talking to Diana Rigg and Carlos says, with every failure, I die a little here. And he taps his chest and there's a little pause and he says, in my wallet. And I think that's a wonderfully cheeky little line. And of course, we've got the fantastic Charlie Chan impression by Chin. When Carlos outlines what he wants, he actually uses that sort of Benny Hill Chinaman speak. Yeah, it's a bit of an ingag that as well about the whole Charlie Chan thing, because ITC had made the new adventures with Charlie Chan series themselves. There's also the bit towards the start of the episode where Carlos is on the plane and he's being hassled by that large lady. He just wants a quiet flight and she's just giving him loads of jip. Doesn't get away with it. Diana Riggin, this is great as 
as she would later go on to prove fantastic that it's an early role you know pre-avengers and stealing scenes and stuff you know we got the annoying david healy who i find <laughs> annoying all the time and what he does but you know he's not so bad in this oh, he's pa- fun in it yeah paul maxwell you know the usual sort of paul maxwell type of character and the other thing of course that i forgot to mention is the chemistry between diana rigg and carlos thompson that mm. works really well and you know the gag with the smuggling wheelbarrows and of course as he did in man of the world we get donald sutherland for 10 seconds We've said it time and again in, in these podcasts that Donald Sutherland used ITC for his television training, basically. But there is an element of sort of dead man's shoes, man in a suitcase episode, in that you are throwing your hero in and asking, you haven't done any background checks on these guys you're doing business with at all. And I mean, Lamont actually describes them as my partner in crime. And he actually, does. until he sorts it out, that's what he is in a way, isn't it? This is it. I say on occasions, Carlos does slip up. He's not infallible. He's got normal human frailties. From that point of view, he's far more like a McGill. He's certainly flawed. Yeah, well, he's easily distracted by females, isn't he, for a start? Any girl that comes in... Well, you'll be appalled by what I'm about to say, Jazz, but he could have almost played a part in The Persuaders. I can kind of see what you're saying there. Okay, I think we should talk about the clunkers, but only the Carlos clunkers, because clearly the John Turner episodes are a very different kettle of fish. There are two for me that are just appalling. It's not often I say that about ITC, but the first one is called May the Saints Preserve, which has got Carol Cleveland with the absolutely worst Texan accent. I think her acting's not much better, to be honest. It's a ridiculous story about wanting to move a castle from Ireland to America. And it just, it's just naff. The weird thing is all three of us agreed separately that it's truly awful. And yet, if you look at any of the reviews online, it's one of the favourite episodes and people say how brilliantly funny it is. I don't know why. Carol Cleveland admitted in her autobiography that she thinks it was a bit over the top. But then she said in her defence, everybody else was. I can't argue with that at all. But she said she really got on with Carlos. He was really friendly. She nearly killed him driving a car in one of the scenes. All I can say is maybe Saints preserve us from ever watching it again. The writer, Patrick Campbell, he was that noted sort of Irish humorist. So he's probably just taking a dig at himself and his own people or whatever. Isn't that Patrick Campbell as in Call My Bluff? That is Patrick Campbell as in Call My Bluff. I'll tell you what, he was calling our bluff back then. I suppose the other one, it's not really a clunker. It's a bit borderline, I suppose. A little sweetness and light. I mean, it's got some good bits to it. They go off to Greece and Cena Marshall's character in it is brilliant and steals the whole episode for me. And she's fabulous. But it comes down to, I'm afraid, and the Avengers fans are going to dislike me a lot for this, Patrick Newell. Again, it's another one of these character actors that just rubs me up the wrong way. I never really liked him as mother, although I, I liked those Avengers episodes. I always thought that was the weakest point of the whole thing. And I know that everyone's going to shoot me down in flames for that. But there's something about him. You don't like Warren Mitchell. I think it's something to do with those comic characters. I don't like Warren Mitchell's characters in The Avengers and The Saint, but in other stuff, like in, in Sickness and Health, I think he's brilliant. So it's not okay. just that I don't like him, it's just some of the portrayals that he's done. But Patrick Newell, I can't think of anything that I'm really like, wow, he was great in that. Mm. I don't think Patrick Allen works in it either. To me, Patrick Allen makes a superb villain. It's got to be a hardcore villain, like he is in Man in a Suitcase, in Gideon's Way, he's superb. In The Baron. Yes. But here, because this is action-adventure light, I don't think you get the best out of him. There are problems with both Patricks, I think, in terms of acting styles in this one. 
you're placing it lower down in the sort of rankings, but this is actually the episode which charted at the highest position. It hit number 10 in the weekly ratings. There's some nice stuff in there. The teaser sequence, which opens it with the killing of the old man, that's quite hard for this series. There's some nice dialogue in it. Rodney, you were saying about this episode earlier where, to an extent, Barella seems to be running the island in a sort of mm -hmm. semi-protection racket basis. And he does say during the auction, eventually you'll buy at the full price, like they've got no option. For me, the trouble with this one is that the two Patricks aren't reined in. I mean, Patrick Newell comes back better at the end. He plays the sort of hot-headedness of the redo character fairly well at the end. The two characters, the bandit and the gangster, are very broadly drawn, and they play them broadly, I think. The director doesn't rein them in, whereas Zenith Marshall's character is just a stronger character, but she plays it so well, as you said, Josh, she absolutely steals it. It's a nice plot. It reminds you very much of, or rather, precurses Vendetta for the Saint. It must have been a bad week's viewing for that one to get so high. It's just a bit meh. I've never really understood the viewing thing, though, because you don't know what the episode's going to be like before you watch it, do you? So in a sense, it's not like putting on the TV to watch a Bond film and you probably already know vaguely mm. what it's going to be about. The story isn't bad, but I think it would have worked far better as a danger man or saying, I think if you're going to have Action. Patrick Allen, you need to have Patrick Allen playing a, a really nasty. Yes, yeah. basically. Fundamentally, what you're saying is you need it as an actioner. Yes. Yeah. Rather than this, this dialogue-driven piece. There's obviously the fun bit where they won't let the auctioneer on the island do the auction. So Carlos becomes the auctioneer. And you can see that that's quite fun. He's fun and he's great at that. They say the two Patricks. I want Patrick Allen to be as evil as possible. Yeah. And Patrick Newell, I kind of... You don't want, want him to... there at all. Well, <laughs> if he's there, I want him to rein it in a bit. The thing is, is that brilliant performance by Zena Marshall is kind of lost because of those two. That's why I say she steals it, because I happily sit there and watch her all day. But as soon as it cuts to the other two, I'm thinking like, oh, come on. Well, they take Miss Carter to the island and she just disappears. I have to say that's a nice little cafe set that they use, even though it is, a, again, a, a sort of single confined set and they do a lot of the action there. You're not going to let finishing school off. We need to move on, really, then, to the John Turner ones, because for me, none of them are particularly great. And as you've mentioned, finishing school there, I mean, it's there with that Carol Cleveland episode for me. And even though it's got Annette Andre in it, her accent there, I don't know what was going on, because it's, again, terrible, which is a real shame, because, you know, Annette's great in virtually everything she does. But what, what a waste of Annette Andre on indeed. a non-Carlos episode. We've seen how good Diana Rigg is at flirting with Carlos and Annette Andre well, doesn't get much better in terms of ladies he would want to flirt with. And she's left with living in some caravan and then having to deal with, you know, this accent that she couldn't cope with. You've got a class actress in the form of Ellen Cherry. The youth acting is appalling. There's some awful back projection in it when the car's police cars coming up behind them at the end. Andrew Ray was never the greatest actor in the world, let alone casting him as the juvenile romantic lead. And, and Annette's autobiography says, after the stint in The Sentimental Agent, she was, in quotes, resting for a while. When you see the episode, it's not surprising. At one point, Bill Randall's driving, and he, he's driving appallingly. And uh, Chin says to him, better to arrive late than not at all. And my thought was better to arrive in about the 49th minute of this episode. I like the fact there's a Hillman imp in it, but even that's unconvincing where they say, oh, it's a souped up Hillman imp. Like you think like, well, you would never be able to super Hillman imp up that that's going to go like 95 miles an hour or whatever it was. It was going to outchase this police car. And, and that car crash is very unconvincing that they have where Annette's sped off. I mean, it's a totally different car. They don't even bother to get one where they no, want it up the no. same way. It's not as bad as Made Saints Preserve, as I don't think, but it ain't far off. And, of course, then we've got the other ones. Let's list them all. The Height of Fashion, Boxer Tricks, not quite fully covered. I mean, we might as well talk about the Height of Fashion. I mean, the thing is that Sue Lloyd is great in that. She looks fantastic, clearly got great stage presence, can really act. 
So we've got John, who can't even sell a, a horse rug to the leading horse lady in the country. He's just yeah. terrible salesman. But this is an example where I think the script must have been changed a lot because you'd have never given that part to Carlos. You'd have never had him as a terrible salesman because we know mm. he can sell anything. There, they must have tweaked it. Yeah. I think this is just a very badly written script because it's written by the same people who wrote Finishing School. I mean, the first sort of 15, 20 minutes trying to sell those blankets is embarrassing. And then you've got the subplot of the industrial espionage, which begins to verge upon interesting, but not quite. And you've got such a good guest cast wasted. Oh, what still... a waste of that guest cast. I mean, Judy Parfit, who I always like. Anton Rogers. I mean, what yeah. a waste. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a bit of character, like you said. Prior to recording this, it's just sort of something straight out of a Bats and Trinians movie. Then you've yeah. got Warren Mitchell doing a decent turn for a bit, and he's just swamped by this rubbish script. The thing is the height of idiocy. It, you know, you, you've got to convert a horse blanket to haute couture to fit a princess. But, you know, Sue Lloyd really almost plays the Carlos part here because yeah. she is mm. the clever salesperson. She's got the vision and the charm, which... Timber doesn't have. <laughs> Anybody can outsell Bill Turner. The whole sort of crux of these final four is how dim he is, how the ladies are smarter than him. If we go along to the other two. Which one do you want to talk about? Not quite fully covered. Okay. Which to me, it's, to it's, be honest, is kind of almost like a barren story. You know, the whole idea of these antiques being somewhere and he's got to go get them and there's insurance involved. That's a premise for a barren story, definitely. It's the standout episode of the four bills because there's actually somebody in there who acts as badly, if not worse, than John Turner, Keith Baxter, as Yanni, the insurance agent. Believe this or believe it not, in the stage world, he was being mooted as the next Olivier. I think he's terrible. The redeeming feature of this episode is you've got some lovely guest stars. You've got Charles Lloyd Pack as the auctioneer, Reginald Beckwith as the insurance assessor, who does brilliantly with that technical insurance dialogue. And for once in ITC land or anywhere else, it's a role for Imogen Hassel that doesn't depend on her looks. Exactly. Yeah, we mentioned that before, didn't we, in our little pre-chat, that here she proves that she can really act given the chance and it's mm. not just all about how she looks or her body i think she's good in this the guest cast are completely wasted in this which they are in most of john turner's episodes to be honest is the best of his episodes but that doesn't mean it's good by any way do you think that's better than a box of tricks no i don't i think the box of tricks is reasonably well written well plotted and it's a plot that's worthy of Carlos. He pulls it off to an extent, but he hasn't got Carlos's charm. I think with Box of Tricks, all the chin stuff, doing all the magic tricks, all of that is fantastic. And Zena Marshall, again, she comes back, she's great in it. Ferdy Main's being Ferdy Main. But it's that end thing that is, I don't know, it just feels like a, such a, a naff way to end the series, you know, where like Susie's on the phone to both Carlos and John Turner. And, you know, and it's like this mix up of phone conversations and it ends with like, oh, I love you. It's just like, oh. But yeah, I agree. The romantic ending is a naff way to end the series. And we open this adventure with what has to be probably the naffest spot of the show when we get some reused footage from Man of the World with Shirley Eaton and they use Dale Winton's mum to block out Shirley to make it look as if she's going on a romantic trip with Carlos. I think we all agree that what started with such potential and quite fun and interesting bit of espionage danger man type plots and things like that, maybe a sort of saint plot. It's no fault really of the production team or anything like that. If Carlos went ill, there's nothing you can do. You've got to try and finish the series. It's just John Turner just can't deliver in the same way. And it, it's a real sort of... Ugh. In the episodes that have Carlos, he's never out-acted or out-shone. I mean, Diana Rigg, you know, goes toe-to-toe with him. But the only times when the um, John Turner ones work is when there isn't normally an actress outplaying him or a child out acting him 
The camera just loved that boy. He was just perfect for that part. Although it's a forgotten series, this isn't one that I get out regularly and watch. When the DVD set came out, I watched them all. And I do remember thinking, oh, it tails off that last disc, disc four. It was a bit of a disappointment. But, you know, rewatching them again, it's great to see. Because I think Carlos is fantastic. He's got a real screen presence. He's clearly carries the show. And, and it's a shame that he became ill because it would have been nice to have ended in the way that it started. If you've not got it, it's worth picking up. I think it's quite cheap at the moment. The plus points for me are the soundtrack as well. Soundtrack album's fantastic. So all round, I would say definitely not in ITC's top 20. I mean, as you know, I wax lyrical about Men in the World, and I don't think it's far behind Half Hour Danger Men and The Saint. I think if you could have given Carlos Thompson the scripts, directors, and the budget that Men in the World had, we'd have had a really super show. I would just say it's not the ITC fair that you're used to, but be open-minded. It's a charming diversion. And follow up from what Jazz says, if you don't want to, you don't have to put disc four in the player at all. Well, that way you wouldn't have to deal with Tim Turner, which to be has <laughs> been a bit of a highlight of this podcast. Excuse my fits of laughter here i didn't know that was coming <laughs> rodney pulled a great one out of the hat there it's been a great chatting to you guys as always it's been fun to catch up and discuss this series i hope you've had fun with it yeah no yeah. no good good fun yeah definitely great fun yeah and on that note we'll say goodbye and we'll see you soon so um thanks ever so much for tuning in and listening to the itc entertain the world podcast so it's thanks from me, Jazz Wiseman, and goodbye. Yep, goodbye. And thanks from me, and goodbye too. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast, The Sentimental Agent, with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, and Al Smudge. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after. Thank you.